0: Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. Hope you guys are all doing well. When this episode drops, it's actually going to be the week before Valentine's Day and all of that, the Galentine's Day of it all, the Valentine's Day of it all, all of those holidays. So it's a little bit premature, but I thought I was doing some thinking about The week of love, the month of love, just the Hallmark holiday aspect or like where does Valentine's Day come from? And I realized that I actually did a whole episode on the origin story of Valentine's Day. I think it was either last year or in 2020. So that's already been done. You guys can look it up. Just search thick and thin Valentine's Day, something like that. But one kind of category or territory I haven't really delved into in the love sphere is The more symbolic, like the symbols behind love, why are they the way they are? So we're going to debunk a few here. I'm going to talk about some stuff from history, some good stuff, some love letters, some really interesting stuff, just all in the theme of love. In the name of love, we are doing today's episode. But before I get into that, I just want to like chat about life, kind of just give you the lowdown on my current state of affairs personal stuff, and then we'll get into the stories. I think it's gonna be a good one. It's kind of all over the place. We actually start out a bit uplifting and happy and cheerful and cute, and then things backslide real quick, and it ends a little bit uh, tragically. But, you know, that's life. So is life. There's the good stuff, there's the bad stuff, all those things. And I'm so hopped up on caffeine right now. If you guys can't tell, I already recorded my other podcast this morning, and... Have done quite a few things. It's kind of a miracle or just like a really crazy concept that isn't crazy at all. Just all the things you can accomplish if you wake up before seven. Like I woke up at seven this morning or just a smidge before like 6.55 because we were recording our podcast at 7.30 and it takes me a little bit to get everything set up and also get my morning voice out of the way. Like I have to get my coffee in and like do some things before I can properly speak and articulate. So I got up at like 6.55. The sun was like hardly coming up through the buildings. And it was just like kind of a crazy thing because I simply do not wake up that early. I wake up around like 8, 8 8.15 on a normal basis. And that being said, I don't really get out of bed until like 8.25, 8.30. And I get to the gym a little after nine. And that's usually my morning. I didn't go to the gym this morning, but it's crazy. I already knocked out four things on my to-do list and it's only 11 a.m. right now, which is like just a miracle. I think I need to start waking up earlier, but that would require me going to bed earlier as well, which I find to be a very hard thing because I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but especially when I work pretty late, like I find myself editing something or working on something till like maybe 8.30 on some nights and then you know, by the time I eat dinner and do the things that I have to do to like keep myself alive, you know, (laughs) like the necessities, the necessary things. Then I'm like, oh, this is me time. And I like get so sad for the me time to end. Like I don't want my me time to end. And going to bed is it signals me time is over. So I'm like, no, five more minutes. Like I feel like I'm talking to my mom, but my mom is me now. Like I am my keeper. And I'm like, just five more minutes, five more minutes. And I dilly dally and I put things off and I take extra long brushing my teeth and like doing all the things because I just don't want my me time to be over. So I don't know if anyone can relate to that, but it was a really gorgeous thing being up early this morning and I didn't really feel that tired. Like I initially I was like kind of pissed to be awake, but then once I got up and moving, I think the biggest thing is just getting yourself out of bed and Yeah, just doing whatever works for you. I will say my hatch alarm clock, I don't know if I've talked about that yet on here. I might've like briefly touched on it, but my hatch alarm clock, yes, I was converted. I was influenced. My mom actually got it for me for Christmas and the whole appeal of it is it's an alarm clock, but it's really aesthetically pleasing, number one. And number two, it has like a noise machine feature, but also a really cool light, like orb light sort of feature, I don't know if orb is the right thing. It's just like a light, like a gradient sort of light. It's like a night light, but you can choose the colors. Like you can make it a red light, which red lights apparently are good for your, I don't know, your... I, I just know a bunch of my friends like put a red light on in their room before they go to bed. I don't really know what it does, but they have that feature. But you could also choose like a variety of different sounds and it naturally, like you can set a timer for how long the sound goes until you fall asleep. And it's just a very... Very soothing experience, The Hatch. So I do like it. I will say I don't think that the sounds are loud enough for my rooming my house situation at the moment because you guys know I live on a very busy street. That's the whole reason why I'm leaving and I'm moving next month. So it just genuinely like the ocean sounds doesn't even remotely drown out the street noise at night like the trucks and the sirens and the people screaming. So I actually I rely heavily on my air conditioner white noise to drown everything out even in the winter. I'm just like shivering with the air conditioner on because I need like the blaring white noise. It needs to be like loud. So, I don't really use it to fall asleep as much the hatch, but in the morning it's a glorious glorious wake up. It's very subtle, like it slowly gets louder and I chose these like very magical sounding chimes to wake me up. So the chimes just slowly start to chime and then it gets brighter. Also like the face of it turns this like golden yellow color. I chose that color and it gets slightly brighter and I actually face the door. I sleep on my side. Sometimes I start on my back, but I always end up on my side and I'm facing the door, which I think is kind of natural. If you live alone, you wanna be able to see the door if you can, if it's possible. For me, it is because I have a studio. So you want to be facing the door just so if something happens, you can spring into action or whatever. You can see what's going on. Like That's just how I feel at least. So I'm facing the way where the hatch is facing. We're facing each other almost. So it gets all bright, like right in my face. And it starts to like seep through my eyelids. And I'm like, oh, time to wake up. So I actually really do like the hatch. I think it's worth the hype. At first, I was having issues with it like glitching, but now it's great and it it pairs with my phone. Very cool stuff, though I know in my, I'll give a full review when I get to my new apartment when it's much quieter so I can actually hear the nighttime sounds because drifting off to like ocean sounds, it just sounds like something I would like. So we'll see if it's better when I can actually hear it. And just the whole experience, like, we're just counting down the days at this point, guys. We actually have a, a month and 10 days until I move in. I think I've decided I'm actually doing a weekend move. It's St. Patty's Day weekend because my parents are so graciously coming down or coming up from Maryland to help me. Not necessarily, like, packing things. I'm planning on doing all of that before they get here. It's more so just moral support. Like, there's just nothing more awkward than... Being in your new space and just standing there by yourself watching the movers unpack your stuff Like it just feels i've done it before and it just it's always just nicer to have someone and What's better than family to do that? Anyway, so that's the deal. That's I guess my update. Yep Cool alarm clock and i'm gonna try to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier but otherwise, things are good, very busy. I'm not doing as much fashion week stuff as I've done in the past because I've just come to the conclusion that it doesn't make me feel good. It causes me to actually spiral out of control and like compare myself to other people, compare my body, compare my sense of style, over consume, buy way too much. Like it just it's not good for my soul. So I'm doing a few things where my friends are going to be and like it's a social atmosphere and something that I'm interested in brands that I'm interested in and I'm limiting it to that not overdoing it personal preference like to each their own truly everyone can do what they want to do that's just what I want to do so that is my philosophy on that and it'll be over before we know it and we're going to on to the next thing you know and that's yeah that's my update so I guess without further ado let's get into our loved up episode of thick and thin Strap in, we're gonna answer some questions that have been on my heart recently. Pun intended, because the first one is, why is the heart, the organ, like the heart that's beating in your chest right now, why is that a symbol of love? And taking things a step further, what is with the symbol? Like the heart symbol that we use, the emojis that we send, the, the symbol that we scratch into trees with our initials inside. Why do we use this specific symbol for a heart when they look nothing like the actual organ inside of our bodies? And do we need a heart to love or does the brain do it? Well, Okay, so those are the burning questions I've had that, of course, we're going to answer today because I can't just have a thought or a question. I have to figure it out and share it with you guys. And honestly, these little tidbits, these little facts, little segments of history will actually be great little party tricks for you to pull out. Like, if you ever... I don't know, have a lulling conversation, say, did you know X, Y, and Z from what I'm going to share today? So first of all, let's dive into actually the last question I just posed. Okay, so talking about the emotion, love, the feeling, love, these emotions related are actually regulated in the brain, not the heart, which we've actually talked about before. We've talked about the amygdala before. I'm not going to dive deep into it, but just so you know, the heart is not responsible for feelings of love, which I guess if if I really thought about it, I would come to that conclusion as well because, you know, it makes sense that feelings of love would actually be processed in the brain, right? That's where all the activity happens, like the thought process and like likes, dislikes, all of that stuff happens in the brain, right? Like you rely on the senses to a certain extent and then it just goes straight to the brain and then you process it in various different parts and different, different parts are responsible for different things. We've talked about this a million, million times, but people might associate the heart with love and feeling-based emotions because we get excited our hearts beat fast, we notice that our heart is beating fast in our chest. And so we think, okay, love must come from the heart. And so that is likely why, like if you ever wonder like, oh, why do we associate the heart with love? Well, it's probably because of the things that love causes our bodies to do in terms of like a reaction, but it isn't so much reliant, like the heart is not the epicenter of love though we associate it like that, but why? So I actually read that when you lock eyes with a person who you like, who makes your heart race due to excitement or nervousness or what have you, whether it's a fresh new crush or the love of your life for over 30 years, your brain releases hormones such as dopamine, adrenaline, and noradrenaline, which that last one actually plays an important role in the body's fight or flight response. Interestingly enough, the body releasing this cocktail of dopamine, adrenaline, non-adrenaline, well, this makes your heart beat faster and faster. And the fact that our hearts behave like this might make someone, especially someone long ago with less knowledge of what's actually going on inside of our various organs and body parts, someone might assume that, oh, well, it's because like, you know, our heart beats like this and it it reacts like this when we see something that we're either nervous about or like because our heart controls our feelings. Like that just must be why. So I guess that's probably, that's really all I could find online is like why people associate it that way. But let's talk about the more interesting of all the questions. Like, why do we use those, like, two sloping curves drawn together into a heart emoji? Like, why is that called a heart? And why do we associate that with love and with all of the above when it doesn't resemble an actual heart organ at all, you know? Like, the organ in in our chest that pumps blood through our bodies in truth resembles more of like a, a lopsided fist than the sloping arcs of the heart symbol that we know and i love a good heart emoji i'm a big heart-shaped anything girly like last night i actually made heart-shaped pizza at a brand event and i was thinking about all this i'd already done the research which is so interesting so of course i'm sitting there like molding this dough into a heart and made heart-shaped pizza And I'm like, guys, did you know? And I'm like spewing these fun facts. I pretty much piloted this episode last night at this dinner because I was telling everyone all these fun facts about hearts. But anyway, okay, so let's talk about it. Where did the heart symbol come from and why does it look the way that it looks despite being referred to as a heart? Like We know it doesn't look like the organ, but where did this shape come from? You know, this perfectly symmetrical shape that whenever you see it, like I just see it on things like last night, even this restaurant we went to, the menu had hearts above the eyes, like the letter, the letter I, like it had a little heart above instead of like a little circle dotting the i and it just brings you a little bit of joy. Like why? Why do we why do we have this association? And just more so, where did the symbol come from? Why does it look the way it looks? So, if we look far back enough in history, we can actually trace the heart symbol back to ancient Rome. However, it wasn't just a guess at what the heart might look like. And I say that because one can assume like if you know, if I had to guess why did the Romans come up with this symbol? I would say, oh, maybe they invented that this is what the heart looks like, the organ, because no one would maybe know. They wouldn't have advanced enough medicine to be able to pry open the body at this point and see what the heart actually looks like. So they just invented this symbol based on just a pure guess. But I would be wrong if I guessed that because people actually at this time knew what the real heart looked like because the first recorded autopsy of a corpse happened in Alexandria in 300 BCE. And the Egyptians were removing corpses organs for mummification thousands of years before that. So ancient Romans were well familiar with the true shape of the heart organ. Instead, the heart symbol actually comes from the Greek and later Roman colony of Cyrene, which was located in modern-day Libya. Ancient coins from this area that have been unearthed sometimes have the heart symbol engraved on them, and it's the oldest known time that the symbol was used. So, like, the first time based on everything that's been found to date, that this has been used. So that's why they think that this is the origin, this article that I found. So the first discovery of the heart symbol was then. Sometimes a heart is engraved on the surface of the coins that have been found, but other times they are marked with a type of plant. So we have like the same sort of look. I actually, I have a visual in front of me from this article that I'll have linked, but they're two identical looking coins. They kind of look like dimes, like this silver obviously circular coin, perfectly round coin. Some of them have a heart, like a traditional looking heart on there, and then others have this plant. So the two designs must be connected, people thought, and they were right. The heart symbol comes from the seed of the ancient plant that Cyrene's economy actually depended on, which is called silphium. Silphium grew abundantly, along the coast near Cyrene. And the Romans considered this plant to be worth its weight in silver. And for good reason. It was believed to be a medical panacea. And I Googled that word because I actually, I've seen it before, but I don't really know what it means. And in other words, it means it was a fixer, like a solution or remedy for all diseases, all ailments, like a a magical fix-it drug. Describing the medicine derived from silphium, which people called laser, For some bizarre reason, Pliny the Elder. Is it Pliny or Pliny? Pliny. I think it's Pliny. Yeah, I've heard of him before. I studied him back in high school, so it's been a minute. But he was a famous Roman author, naturalist, and natural philosopher. And he wrote laser, which was a juice that distills from silphium. That plant, as we've already stated and reckoned, among the most precious gifts presented to us by nature, is made use of in numerous medicinal preparations. Employed by itself, it warms and revives persons benumbed with cold, and taken in drink, it alleviates affections of the sinews. It is given to females in wine and is used with soft wool as a pessary to promote the menstrual cycle mixed with wax it extracts corns on the feet after they have been first loosened with a knife ow <laughs> ow a piece of it the size of a chickpea melted in water acts Also, as a diuretic. So, in short, silphium was this ultimate fix it sort of drug. So, not only did it do all of those things or assist with all of those things, but silphium seeds were also contraceptives and could be used to induce abortions. So, as we know, we've talked about actually, I think I did a whole episode on condoms, but we know or can assume that the ancient Romans didn't have latex condoms. Instead, they used things like bladders or intestines of sheep and goats. But interestingly enough, like the primary purpose of these condom substitutes wasn't actually to prevent pregnancy. It was actually only really to prevent venereal disease. For preventing pregnancy, people used sylphium, of course, because it was just the thing that people used for everything. Like you have any sort of ailment? sylphium, sylphium it is. Ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle believed that the heart was the seat of the soul and therefore the origin of all thought and all feeling, including love. So the heart, love linked thanks to Aristotle. So as the legend goes through its association with love making, you know, because this stuff was used after sex, the distinctive shape of silphium seeds became associated with love. And through its association with love, the silphium seed became associated with the heart. So let me break it down again in simpler terms because that was kind of confusing. So silphium, the plant, the ultimate fix-it drug, The seeds from this plant, if you look them up, are actually heart shaped. Like they are naturally occurring heart shapes. But of course, back then, like there was no association with it as being a heart shape. It was just a sylphium shape, like a sylphium seed. But because sylphium seeds, they were associated with sex because of the contraceptive element, and because of that, like sex is associated with love. Of course, in some, not all situations, but the way that they were closely linked, sylphium seeds and lovemaking. So it became known during this time through all of this as a heart and therefore associated with love because of that. Legend has it. So yeah, it's actually really cute. If you look up the pictures of the seeds, they are truly heart-shaped. So also because, you know, like I said, Aristotle, he believed that the heart was the seed of the soul. It was the origin of, all thought and feeling, including love. So all of these things just mashed together is the reason for why we associate this symbol with love and why we call it a heart. I don't really know why heart, H-E-A-R-T, like why? I'm not sure about that. Couldn't find anything on that. But anyway, very interesting. And so that is apparently why today we give each other heart-shaped, silphium-shaped candies on Valentine's Day and not candies shaped like actual hearts, aka these Lopsided fists. I mean, part of it has to be the fact that hearts just aren't like the way that they are naturally occurring. The organ heart is not very cute, not very aesthetically pleasing. So thank goodness we don't give out heart-shaped candies. Like truly, heart-shaped candies on Valentine's Day, I actually might vom. But yeah, so we do that. You know, we've adopted the symbol. But one thing that we don't do today. Is take silphium to prevent pregnancy. You know, granted, we have better contraceptives today, among other things, but we actually couldn't take silphium even if we wanted to because it's actually gone extinct. As far as we know, silphium only grew along a narrow stretch of coast in North Africa. A few different factors may have gone into its extinction in the fourth century, but it's been written that farmers would feed their flocks silphium, probably to improve the quality of the meats and all of the yields that came from the animals. People were truly overusing it. You know, they were using the silphium as a fix-all, use-on-all for everything. And the obsession with the plant likely led to over-harvesting, and according to Theophrastus, aka the father of botany, the plant could not be cultivated and only grew in the wild. So over time, northern Africa became increasingly more desert than fertile land, and because of all these things, the plant was lost. However, the shape of its seed lives on. So that's really cute. Anyway, that is why symbol is the way it is. And speaking of the ancient Greeks, they actually had unique words for seven different kinds of love, seven different types. From my research, I found all seven and meanings for each, which I found super interesting. You might have heard this already if you've studied something along these lines, but I'd never heard of this before. So a lot of these words that we've known, that we've said, come from this and I just had no idea. So the first one is platonic love, philia. So platonic love, also called philia, and these are soul-to-soul bonds, encompasses the love shared between friends and intimate family members, and is characterized by trust and loyalty. So I've used the word platonic so many times, and that's the first kind of love, according to the ancient Greeks. The second kind is familial love, storge, and it's unconditional love that parents have for their children. It's a protective, kinship-based love that embodies sacrifice, approval, and acceptance. I'm going to link all of my sources for these things, by the way, but I found it kind of corroborated across many. So the third one is universal love, agape, which I've definitely heard that somewhere and I have no idea where. Like, I wonder, I think someone must have a tattoo, agape tattoo that I know or something, but universal love aka agape means an empathetic selfless love for others that includes a love for nature god strangers and the less fortunate then the next one this is the fifth love is passionate love eros eros is a passion lust sexual attraction and everything we think of when we think of the tv version of love unsurprisingly this type of love was named after the greek god of love and fertility Eros. I think I'm saying that right. Eros? Eros? Then the next one is self-love, fellatia. Fallacia is a bit self-explanatory. It's just all about having self-compassion, love for yourself. And then the last love, playful love, ludus. Playful, flirtatious, non-committal. Ludus is having a crush on someone, then acting on it. It's the infatuated phase that occurs in early stages of romance. So those are the seven... Different types of love according to the ancient Greeks. And based on all these definitions, I think a good life has a healthy dose of each of these. You know? So, interesting. Interesting stuff. Lots of ways we can find love in our lives. So, like I said, starting on a positive note, ending on kind of a bit darker of a note, but a very interesting little tale that I uncovered when I was researching love. I just, I mean... Just searching the word love on all of my favorite websites to find fun facts and stories and I came across a slightly darker sort of tale But something that you will definitely find interesting, especially if you Are interested in antiques and things from the past So speaking of love, let's talk about a now famous love letter from the past a letter that is worth $23,279 today or as of the publication of the article that I will have linked in the show notes. And it's an interesting, yet sad, yet sweet, yet historic one. And one, a story that I'd never heard of before. So the year was 1912, and a large luxury steamship was embarking on its maiden voyage. Richard Geddes was one of the stewards aboard the vessel, and he was in charge of managing the guests' bedrooms. While he was away at sea, His wife Sally, or maybe Sal or Sarah, one of the three, like it's kind of tricky to figure out exactly which, but his wife and his eight-month-old daughter Elsie were back at home waiting for his safe return while he was out at sea. And while he was away, Richard would write letters home to his wife as often as he could, telling her about the situation aboard the boats. He would steward different dramas, and they would also contain a lot of loving remarks. They were love letters at their core. He would get out a pen and write these love notes on stationery bearing the name of the boat he was working on, which very sadly in this story today was the RMS Titanic. So you can already kind of assume where this is going, But prior to the Titanic, Richard had some other assignments on other vessels, and every single time he went away on assignment, he would write his wife letters. So this was something that he did, his little love notes that he sent home. Very, very cute. But the day after they boarded the Titanic, like the crew and everyone boarded the Titanic, he wrote his wife a letter, which was just days before the infamous iceberg collision that caused the demise. And it actually, this specific letter revealed a near disaster days before the ultimate disaster, like the big disaster. So on April 10th, 1912, just one day after the Titanic left port, Geddes wrote to his wife to describe a near collision with the SS city of New York, which was another boat. The two vessels came within feet of each other as the Titanic left the docks. (laughs) Let me say that again. They came within feet of each other. If you think about how massive these boats are, like these super heavy, massive boats, like the fact that they came feet, like feet... A foot in like a small boat, I'm thinking as, you know, I come from a boating family. We have like a smaller center console sort of like fishing style boat. And I'm picturing even that boat coming a foot like so very close to another boat, like hitting another boat. You just don't get that close to other boats. like Even at port, like it would just take a major mess up to get that close with a smaller boat. So think about a large ship. How how much like how badly you have to screw up in order for them to get that close to one another like that and I don't know I just feel like that's just so crazy that they were able to get that close but left unscathed but anyway so the suction from the propellers of the Titanic caused the city of New York's ropes to snap releasing it aloft and nearly causing a major collision between the ship and the 882-foot-long Titanic. So technically, it was, you know, the suction from the propellers of the Titanic, so it wasn't the Titanic crashing into the other boat. It was like the other boat kind of being sucked towards the Titanic. But there must have been a law or a rule about the propellers... And, you know, I just somehow I feel like this was the Titanic's fault because of what ultimately happened. But maybe I'm just a little bit biased. I feel like there must have been a rule about like not turning on the propellers at port and waiting. I don't know, pushing off and then doing it. I don't really know. I'm not that well versed in boat terminology, but at the end of the day, like these two vessels came within feet of each other. And yeah, so Richard, our guy Richard, who wrote the love letters, wrote this letter to his wife who he addressed as my dearest, Sal. And he said, we got away yesterday after a lot of trouble. I could see visions of Belfast. It must have been a trying time for the captain. So he pretty much just described like, okay, this, we had a near accident. We had a near issue. A lot of trouble. Even when they had just left port, they were already having trouble. According to Encyclopedia Titanica, electricians Albert George Irvine and Alfred Middleton, who were perched atop the massive vessel's fourth funnel, witnessed what could have been an earlier disaster for the Titanic, the very one that Richard was referring to. Like, word had spread. And this is very interesting stuff. Like, I was surprised to see this article's headline because, wow, like, talk about a bad omen And one that I haven't really heard about before. But back to the electricians. So the electricians, Albert and Alfred, were perched up atop the massive fourth funnel. Like, they were just sitting up top somewhere. And they saw everything. He said, well, Albert said, I thought there was going to be a proper smash-up owing to the high wind. But I don't think anyone was hurt. He wrote this in a letter to his mother. So after telling his wife about the near collision, Richard continued the letter to his wife with, quote, The amount of affection and longing one would expect a a seaman to relay to his family, asking about his little sweetheart, a.k.a. his uh, daughter, and reassuring his wife that she did not need to worry about his safety. The Titanic, he said, felt like a sturdy ship. I found this information from an article on allthatsinteresting.com, by the way, and I'll have the full story linked. But Richard closed his letter with this. He said, the ship is going to be a good deal better than the last one, I think. Steadier and everything up and steadier and everything up until now, A.K. the near collision. If we get in on time Wednesday and there happens to be a boat, I will write from New York. Fondest love and kisses to my dear wife and kids your affectionate husband, Dick, which I guess based on this, on the census, I was reading the census for that year. He, it said he only had one daughter, but I guess maybe there are multiple kids. I'm not really sure if he's referring to family members, whatever, but your affectionate husband, Dick, XXXXX, X, 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 like fondest love and kisses. Oh, I just, it just breaks my heart because sadly, as we know, around p.m. on April 15th, 1912, just a few days after Richard wrote that letter, a lookout saw an iceberg coming out of a slight haze ahead of the ship. He then rang a warning bell, telephoned those in command, the engines were quickly reversed, and the ship was sharply turned. So instead of making direct impact, the Titanic seemed to just barely graze along the side of an iceberg. So... Nothing to worry about, so they thought. The lookouts were relieved, but what they didn't know was the iceberg had a jagged underwater spur, as it's called, which slashed a 300-foot gash in the hull below the ship's waterline. Of the 2,240 passengers and crew on board, more than 1,500 lost their lives in the disaster, including Richard Geddes. Rest in peace, Richard. So sad, honestly, like... No one deserved to die, but now, like having a clearer picture of one of them, Richard, like, oh, it just breaks your heart. But, The letters have been saved and uncovered. I guess maybe they'd already been shipped out to his wife at this point, and she sold them to someone who sold them to someone or whatever, and now they're up for auction, actually. And fourth-generation auctioneer Andrew Aldridge said, it's an exceptional letter on many levels. And he's referring to the one that predicted, that, like, had discussed the initial disaster of, like, almost crashing into another boat, the bad omen, as we've said. So Andrew said, first and foremost, it was written on board the Titanic. It has the Titanic envelope. The lot also contains official paperwork relating to Mr. Geddes, like, you know, proving that he was on the boat. He did this. He did that. And finally, the content is superb, describing the near miss that the Titanic nearly suffered that would have been changed history. Yeah. Like imagine if you always think about this, or at least I always think about it. Imagine if the Titanic had crashed into, or the the other boat had crashed into the Titanic. There had been a collision and the Titanic was deemed unfit to sail or to to continue on its journey. Like just imagine things that would have gone a whole lot differently. It's just so crazy. So Yes, Richard's letter was written on original Titanic stationery that was provided on the ship. And it still has its original White Star Line envelope. And it serves as proof that the Titanic was kind of doomed from the start. hate to say it, but, you know, a bunch. And there was also, I was reading a little bit, I didn't write this down in my notes, but I read somewhere that there was also like a small fire on board the boat when they first were getting on. Like the crew was first... Getting things set up, there was like a small fire, and they put it out, and we're like, "Whoop, that was close. That was a close one." Yeah. So anyway, rest in peace to all of the souls that did not survive the Titanic disaster. It's just so so sad. I read that the last survivor actually passed away in two thousand and nine at the age of like ninety seven. So we don't have any living members of or surviving members of the Titanic, but it's just such an oh goosebump raising story. But Yeah, that's what I found when I searched love on um, allthat'sinteresting.com. I found a spooky love letter that predicted the uh, demise of the Titanic. It's just wacky, crazy stuff. So anyway, that is the episode today, guys. Short but sweet one on love and just some interesting stuff that I've uncovered from just my obsessive Googling. And you guys now have some stories you guys can tell at parties. So hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Thick and Thin and I will talk to you guys all next week. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. Bye.